Today's episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and sexual acts. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. How are you, Darcy? I'm doing pretty good. I've got some whiskey, and I'm ready to talk about some crazy cases. Oh, fuck. Well, now I need booze. I can't be recording this shit with you without booze. I know. Uh, That's why we decided to record at night, remember, so that we could be drinking? Right? God damn it. I'm going to need to stop and go Mm -hmm. get some immediately. Right? So if you did not know, we are a strange and slightly funny duo that likes talking about strange stuff, crazy cases, and very interesting true crime topics. Tonight, we've got some great subjects for you guys. I mean, they're very heavy, somewhat graphic in nature, so bear with us, but they are very interesting nonetheless. Darcy is actually going to start us out tonight with her case. Darcy, what do you have for us tonight? So we're going to talk about the kidnapping of Colleen Stan. And before we get started, I just want to acknowledge my sources here. So a lot of this is from a documentary that you can actually watch, I think, all of it on YouTube. It's called The Girl in the Box. And then I did pull some details here and there from Wikipedia. So I am ready. Let's do it. Okay. so on November 8th of 1984, Pastor Frank Dabney of the Church of the Nazarene in Red Bluff, California, got a visit from a woman named Janice Hooker, who said she had a story to tell him. Janice then proceeded to tell the pastor how she and her husband had kidnapped a woman who was hitchhiking and they had held her captive, torturing and raping her for seven years. So Holy shit. Yeah, so right away the pastor stops her and he's like, look, we can't talk any further without somebody else here to listen to this. So Jeez, with Janice's permission, say again. She, she, they needed Jesus to be with her? That with uh, them there? Well, I think, I think the thing with like the churches <laughs> he was is always there. Jesus, you know. Um, <laughs> been, been a minute since I've gotten into the scripture, but, but they needed okay, a, okay. A, physical, a physical being. Okay, got you, so, got you. With Janice's permission, the pastor contacted a Red Bluff police detective named Al Shamblin. So he comes to the church and then... First of all, let's back up for just one second. For those of you who don't know where Red Bluff is, it is Northern California, right? Yeah, it's it's Northern Inland, right? A very, very small town. Um, Just a little... You blink on on the five on the way up out of California and you can miss it. It's a very, very small area. It's not a highly populated city. Not a lot happens there. It is very rural, very kind of agriculturally oriented. I have been through there many times. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is a very, it's just a little, little side town off of the five on the way up out of Northern California. Yeah. So it's inland near, well, uh, maybe an hour or two from the Oregon border. It's near Redding. So it's up there in all of the national forests and stuff with the big trees and all of that. But it's pretty far inland, too. Janice starts to tell her story to the pastor and the police detective. So four days after she goes to the pastor, police track down this alleged victim at her father's house down in Riverside. And Riverside is in Southern California in Riverside County. The victim did not go to the police. Right. May have kept it secret. Right. So so we're going to get into to all of that. Okay. She she's staying at her father's house down in Riverside. So this is more than 400 miles south of Red Bluff. Now we're going to get into the actual story of what happened. So the victim when she was found by police was 27 years old. Her name is Colleen San and she She confirms the story and tells the police, the detective, that she had actually returned home three months prior and that she had spent seven years as a sex slave for the hookers. And that's when she tells her story. It's 
That's an ironic last name. The, the hookers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a sex slave. Right? Yeah. So, anyway, sorry. In the spring of 1977, Colleen and some friends headed north from Riverside to Eugene, Oregon, which is where the University of Oregon is located. And this is a that's a pretty big trip, right? So on May 19th, Colleen was hitchhiking from Oregon to Westwood, California to surprise a friend for her birthday. And I actually didn't look up where Westwood, California is. Is that I mean, I know like Westwood is where UCLA is, right? But yeah. And, but and just to be clear as well, during that period of time in the late 70s, early 80s, it was common to hitchhike. Mm-hmm. Women did it all the time. So there really was no sense of caution. There really wasn't a lot of cases back then where people were hearing, hey, don't hitchhike. It's dangerous. So it was a common occurrence. And she probably yeah. thought nothing of it when she decided to hitchhike her way to make a trip with her friends. Right. And so she's she's hitchhiked before. This is really common. And it's actually around the same time as Ed Kemper and, and all the things in Santa Cruz, which you can check out our previous episode on that. But so hitchhiking was very common in the 70s and especially in California. So she's going to Westwood, which I actually just looked up. And it's about the same location lad, latitudinally as Red Bluff. So it's Red Bluff. So it's about the same distance north in California, but it's considerably farther east so it's closer to the nevada state line she's going to go surprise a friend for her birthday and by mid-afternoon she'd made her way nearly 350 miles south to red bluff which is like sarah said just right on the the five like we said colleen had already hitchhiked her way 350 miles south to red bluff and at this time she'd already turned down two people that pulled over because she thought they were suspicious so she was somebody who God, was what you would hurts. call like a intelligent hitchhiker, right? Like she wasn't getting right. in the car with a, a single guy or she was looking out for herself. When Cameron and Janice Hooker pulled up and Janice was holding their three-month baby, Colleen felt comfortable enough to get in the car with them. You know, so she's like, like yeah, this is good. a family. There's, this is a couple. They have a baby. These are good people. They're just going to give me a ride, right? Who fucking takes their baby to kidnap someone, first of all? Anyway, sorry. Who kidnaps someone? Right? That too. I mean, mean, let's let's start there. Shortly after they started driving, though, Colleen says she started getting a creepy feeling from Cameron, who kept looking at her in the rearview mirror. At one point during their trip, they're going east, remember, to Westwood. At one point during their trip, they stop at a gas station, and Colleen went in to use the bathroom, and she said that... A voice inside of her head kept telling her to just jump out the window and run. But for whatever reason, feminine, you know, instincts, whatever, she kind of ignored these this voice and got back in the car. She just kind of figured, uh, this is just, I'm just being crazy. I'm just overanalyzing all of this. So she got back in the car. Ladies and gents, if you hear a voice or you your instincts tell you something isn't right, listen. Yes. It is an evolutionary trait that is given to us to save our lives. Listen to your and intuition. The worst thing that can happen is you're wrong and you're, you're embarrassed, right? Yeah, and and I I mean, I have to say I've, I'm guilty of this too. Like there's some things I'm like, I'm probably just in my head overthinking it. And I do the same thing. I mean, I don't hitchhike, so I've not been in this exact situation, but I, we all do it, right? Like I love a, a horror film and you're like, don't run upstairs. Don't go check out the, the scary noise. But at the same time, you hear a scary noise in your actual house. You're not thinking you're living in a scary movie. You're like, it's probably just the refrigerator making a noise or whatever. Like you don't think it's a killer. You know what I mean? So well, I get it. At least take a knife with you for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just saying, no, I'm just saying it's, I, I do kind Pull of understand. Pull out your freaking butterfly knife, Darcy, and take it with you when you make searches like that. Maybe I do. Don't worry about it. So you do have a butterfly knife, right? I'm not just have, imagining that. I do. I have a butterfly knife and two considerably longer bladed flippy knives <laughs> so just darcy's not the one you want to break into her house i mean you know, know maybe you catch me by surprise don't do that i also have a dog <laughs> yes <laughs> a big vicious drooling hound from hell 
Who's <laughs> definitely might, not afraid of everything. Ever. You might literally wag her tail to death if you come into the house. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. We digress. It's the whiskey. She gets back in the car, and a few minutes after they start driving again, Cameron Hooker turned down a deserted road, and then he shut off the car. At this point, Janice and the baby got out of the car, and Cameron jumped in the back seat and held a knife up to Colleen's throat. And he handcuffed, blindfolded, and gagged her. Then he grabbed a wooden box that had been in the back seat beside her in the car. And we have pictures of this box, so we'll post those up on our Instagram. But this thing had hinges and a hole for, like, your neck and everything. So this was something that he had planned and he had built prior to picking her up. And possibly had done this before. He puts the box on her head and he starts the car up again. And so at this point, Colleen no longer has any idea where she is. But she says that she could kind of sense the car descending back down the mountain into Red Bluff. So I guess to get from Red Bluff to Westwood, you go up a mountain and through a forest or whatever. And she sensed that they were going back down the mountain. And so she assumes that they were going back to Red Bluff. And this is where Colleen stands seven years, seven years, her night, the seven year nightmare again. She's got to be shitting her pants. Like he put a fucking wooden box over her head. And I can't even... I truly it's like can't my worst even nightmare. I'm super claustrophobic, so that would yep. be literally my worst nightmare. I am too. I am too. It, it's just the whole thing is just terrifying. Like it's freaking me out. So I mean, at least with some of these other people that were captors and whatnot, like they had like a big room or like the bottom half of a house or like they had a room. Right. This girl had a box on her head. Yeah. Like she, all of her senses are completely removed like she can touch but she has no idea what it is that she's touching right it's like that's it that's all she has they make it back to the hooker's house and cameron led colleen down into the basement and he took off her clothes he forced her to stand on an ice chest and then he placed her wrists and hooks that he had attached to the center beam in the ceiling and these are like those iron hooks that like you hang like a planter from or a hammock or whatever so these are those big ones that you like grew into a beam, you know? Like heavy beam. So, yeah. So uh, he puts her wrists, wrists in these hooks, and then all of a sudden, without saying anything, he pulls the ice chest out from under her. So now she's just hanging there. And when she began to kick and scream, he whipped I'm her. I'm a little bit confused. So, like, her, her like, there's wrist cuffs? Like, how, yeah. how is she... Risk, like, like handcuffs handcuff or like a like okay got it yeah because remember so she, he handcuffed her in the back of the car okay yeah so now she's just hanging there by these latches and these hooks on the roof and when she began to kick and scream he whipped her on her back and told her to shut up and this torture continued for hours and when he left for the night he left her sitting upright on that wooden crate that her head was in And she had her wrists bound to the side of it all night. So she had to sit upright. She couldn't lay down. Her wrists were bound down by her side. And that's how she stayed all night. And this is deliberate. Right. Four days later, her roommates called her parents to report that she hadn't returned from her trip to visit her friend. And so Colleen's parents began searching for their daughter. They drove the 900 miles from Riverside to Eugene, and they stopped in a bunch of different small towns along the way. It doesn't say if they actually stopped in Red Bluff, but, I mean, I don't—who who even knows if they did, you know? I'm sure they probably did. I mean, if, if you're a parent and your child is missing, you will turn over every stone you right. can to try to find that child. Exactly. It's just such a small dot on a map of that whole— route you know what I mean from Riverside to Eugene like it's just there's so many different places so right, but I'm sure that they stopped and asked at convenience stores and said hey have you seen mm-hmm. this girl I mean right canvassed whatever they could but right so they also filed police reports but because she could be anywhere between between Eugene and Westwood which is the last place they know she was going the police didn't have any leads yeah. Say that big, again. Big, long dis- it's a hell of a distance. So. Right. Colleen's mother even sent dental records to the sheriff's departments in both places just in case her remains were ever found. So she was kind of on top of it and assuming the worst from the get-go, but she was doing everything she could, right? And I'm sure and she'd this heard is, of the Ed Kemper shit, so I'm sure her mind immediately right. kind of went to that plate, that dark place. Exactly. And this is, again, this is four days after after she was taken. Back at the hooker's house, Cameron told Colleen that she could go ahead and scream. 
and that he would cut out her vocal cords, and he had done it before. And that is a threat that sounds really believable in that situation, yeah. you know. She was kept naked, blindfolded, and locked inside a coffin-sized box for most of the day. And Janice Hooker stayed at home caring for the baby. And this is just the day-to-day. This is not one single day, but this is over a period of time. And so Janice was staying at home caring for the baby while Cameron worked at a, lo- at a local lumber mill. And when Cameron returned home from work is when he would live out his sadistic fantasies and he would often take pictures. And in one picture, Colleen was attached to a device that Cameron called the rack. It was kind of like a, I don't know, it's, it, it's hard to tell what it is in the picture because they, they like white her out of it. So you mm-hmm. can't really see what it is, but it's like, it looks like a bed thing that like it has places where she's like, her limbs are strapped in and stuff. So obviously it's a torture device. He would also attach electrical devices to her and he would shock her at different times throughout the evenings. And then in another picture, he would attach her wrists to the hooks in the ceiling and would whip her. She endured this torture every day for about three months. And Janice just stood by compliant during during all this. Just to make it clear, he researched he planned he was into masochism and torture and pain for a long period of time before he actually did this to colleen right and he planned perfectly and created this box number one over her head specifically for a purpose and then he created the secondary box which was the coffin size one that colleen was placed into in the evenings and the box was actually placed under their bed well so this went on for for her yeah so this went on for eight months so she was basically just completely isolated for eight months and then he finally removed her blindfold and he led her to a cramped space under the stairs he called this the workshop and he handed her some underground s&m magazines that I I don't know, maybe S&M was not a popular wow. thing, but so it seems like the, these are very intense BDSM magazines, like snuff film level type of shit that's yeah. not, like you can't buy it at like a porn shop or whatever. He read these articles about, that had things like sex slavery and he gives her a contract. In this contract, he explains the inner workings of something he calls the company. And the company is a network of sex slave owners, and this contract says that she is his slave, and she could either comply with everything he said, or he wouldn't be able to keep her, and would have to turn her over to somebody else within the company, and the implication is that this other person in the company might not be as quote-unquote nice as Cameron had been to her. So the devil you know, basically, is what he's saying with this contract. She's starving. She's sleep-deprived. She's tortured. She's abused. She's terrified. For eight months. In her mind, she's she's probably thinking, I have to do what I have to do to survive, and I'm willing to do whatever I have to do to survive. Exactly. She signs this contract, and it states that she must quote, submit her full being to any and all desires of her master, end quote. Cameron also signed the contract, but he used an alias, Michael Powers. And so at this point, we go into a new phase of of Colleen's imprisonment. So she's still locked in the box, but now she's being given clothes and wasn't blindfolded. So up until this point, she was blindfolded the whole time and was kept naked the whole time for eight months. So he's grooming her in a twisted sort of sick fashion. Right. This is when she's raped for the first time. So he actually hadn't raped her until this, until eight months in. From that point on, though, he raped her pretty much whenever he wanted. Just, I guess maybe he felt like the contract was, I don't know, who, who even fucking knows. So excuse to do it, but I'm sure as well, it took an incredible amount of self-control for him. And I'm sure he got off on the fact of knowing he could do whatever he wanted with her when he wanted. Yeah. And maybe it was like a progression thing. So like, maybe it was the idea of having somebody a hot, like a a hostage or quote unquote, and that, you know, got him off. And then it, that didn't, that wasn't enough. And he had to like progress into actually raping her. I don't know who fucking knows, but but this was it, clearly planned out very right for a very long time. This is not yeah. just something he came up with overnight and threw it into motion. Right. And we don't have that much information about like what his everyday life was during these eight months. 
you know, so we don't know what else he was doing. Like, I don't know, maybe he was, he could very well could have been raping his wife the whole time. We have no idea. So, well, (laughs) I did read the book and there was some detail in the book about some of the stuff that he was doing. And he was abusive to most of the women, the people that were in his life. Yeah. And he was working, but he was also planning and building things. And he was a very kind of electric, creative sort of person. Yeah. So I mean, he was in his little workshop planning out all kinds of torture devices right. as well during this time. So he was a very busy boy. The spring of 1978, Janice and Cameron actually moved to a trailer on the outskirts of Red Bluff. I believe they were in a house before mm-hmm. this. So Cameron built another box for Colleen. Colleen. So this second box is a ventilated box that fit into the frame of their waterbed, which is so 70s that it's out of control. And and 80s. (laughs) And a fucking waterbed. Gross. For the next two years, Colleen was subjected to every single detail of Cameron and Janice's private life. She was under their bed for two years. Every day. Every night. The torture continued where he would beat her and things like that, but she was allowed more freedom, which is really common, right? Because they have this, this sense of control over the person they're keeping hostage that they just know that they can let them go out and do more things and they're not going to attempt to escape. It's a learned helplessness. But she at the was same le- time, there's no heat, no air conditioning. She nowhere to go to the bathroom. No with any of that. So Yeah. So Horrifying. She was let out of the box on occasion, and she was allowed to help out with the household, household chores, and sometimes she even got to go outside and garden. But Cameron had a new plan for her as well. He was going to build a dungeon, and he would use this to keep future slaves, and he was going to have Colleen help him, Colleen help him build the dungeon. So he wants a whole stable of slaves, basically. Yeah, basically. Basically, he got bored, right? I mean... He got bored with just having one sex slave. Like, you, when you're an addict like that, you want more and more and more and more. You don't stop once you But this get is more want. than just, just, like, regular sex addiction. You know what I mean? Like, this that's is... That's, like, some serious mental illness. Yeah. Yeah, this is a whole psychopathic... She was allowed more freedom, and she was allowed to sometimes do her chores that she was, quote-unquote, given. She was allowed to do these unsupervised... But because of Cameron's threats about the company, of course, she was never going to try and escape, right? Because she has this this whole threat of this entire network of sex slave owners right. that now know about her, presumably. And are watching her at all times. Ex- exactly. By the end of 1980, she had been a prisoner for almost four years. So at this point, Cameron allows, offers her to, to allow her to call her family, but he threatens that the company was watching her family. And so if she said anything, her family would then be in trouble. Because it's been almost four years, Colleen's family had lost almost all hope of finding her alive. But all she could say when she called was that she was okay and that she loved them and missed them. She wouldn't say anything more than that. And they didn't really ask any questions. They were just happy to hear from her. And the interesting thing here, though, is that they also never contacted the police after the phone call. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really talk about why they didn't contact the police, but... For whatever reason, they didn't. I think she told them not to. Oh, okay. That's possible. That and, wasn't and, in the documentary. And like made but it that's... as a condition. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened is she told him, hey, if you go to the police with this, then it's, I'm going to get in trouble. There will be repercussions of some sort. Hmm. And that's why they didn't do it. Okay. But that's, so, that's interesting because a few months after the phone call, she visited her family with Cameron. And Cameron actually introduced himself as her boyfriend, Mike Powers. If she did say something like that, then by the time they visited, like, they would have known for sure something was up. You know what I mean? Well, I'm sure she convinced them. Yeah. And said, hey, I'm fine. Please don't go to police. You know, you're just going to make trouble and, you know. Right. Blah, or that, blah, blah. like, she left voluntarily or just whatever. Anyway. He introduced himself as Mike Powers, which is the same name he used to sign the sex slave contract. Right. And... He said he was actually on his way to a computer seminar down in San Diego and that he was going to return and pick Colleen up the next day. So he had left her overnight with his fam- with her family and wasn't worried that that, that anything was going to come out, I guess. And there's actually That's pictures that are taken. That's powerful manipulation right there. Yeah, that exactly. significantly powerful manipulation. And so they actually, her family took pictures 
during this brief reunion, blah, blah, blah. And you can tell that she had lost a considerable amount of weight and she was pale. And her family, I think it was her sister maybe in the documentary that said it looked like the life had been drained out of her, which makes sense if she's been kept under a bed for two years. You know what I mean? Like she's not allowed to do anything outside until just very recently. In, In the documentary, she said she wanted to tell her family about the whole ordeal, but she was afraid of the company. And so she was too afraid to say anything. And so... Cameron came and picked her up the next afternoon, and he told her family that they were moving and that they'd send contact information once they got settled. And they took another picture together. And in this picture, she's got a huge smile on her face and her arms around or wrapped around Cameron like it's like she's hugging him like they're a boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh it's really eerie. Creepy. Yeah. And w- I have that, too. And we'll post that. She leaves. So it's seriously her. confusing to anyone who knows her. It is complex and confusing for sure they get back to the trailer in red red bluff and colleen is immediately immediately put back in the box under the bed where she this time she was kept there day and night and she was only able to leave to use the bathroom or eat for the next three years and she said she didn't know why all of a sudden this like took a weird turn because it was almost as if like he was trusting her more and then when they got back from visiting her family like he retaliated against her for something it felt like a like a more severe punishment for something, but she didn't know what. Toward the end of her sixth year of captivity, Janice Hooker started developing an interest in the Bible and going to church. And Colleen was actually religious herself. So during the day when Cameron was at work, Janice would actually let her out of the box and they'd read the Bible together. They had like a little Bible study. Cameron actually then started to allow Janice and Colleen to go to church together. And by all indications... What harm could that do? What? I said, because he figured, what harm could that do? Exactly. And by all indications, this is when Janice kind of had her transformation. Now we're back up to August of 1984. So on August 9th, this is seven years after she was abducted, Janice Hooker told Colleen that her husband had lied and that there was no such, or sorry, there, there was a group called The Company, but that Cameron was never involved with it. So for whatever reason, she decided to pretend that this group did actually still exist But she didn't want to, I guess, let Colleen continue to believe that her husband was part of it and that nobody was watching her and all of that. Well, I'm sure that she wanted to keep Colleen from talking to the authorities about it, enough to set her free and to get her on her way without her going to the authorities about the situation because of her fear of retribution from the company. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. At this point, Colleen starts to balance the risk and reward of making her escape and now that there's that he's not involved with the company, he, Cameron doesn't have this power over her to make her stay anymore. The next day, Colleen actually calls Cameron from a payphone at the bus station to say that she's leaving. And she hung up and she got on a bus and returned to Riverside. So it's interesting that she called him to let him know instead of just bailing, you know? Right. Well, at that point, he had allowed her, it's my understanding that he had allowed her a significant amount of more freedom. So she was out in the yard doing work. The neighbors were seeing her. She was caring for his children. Yeah, it's just, I mean, mean, it's just so interesting that she decided to actually call him and give him a heads up. Yeah, she could have just walked away and not said another word, but that just demonstrated that she had become so twisted in her mind that she still had feelings. She still had feelings for him. Yeah, exactly. Like, she developed this kind of accountability. I don't know. Like, I wouldn't say it's, like, affection, but it's, I don't know, it's accountability. So, Well, if that's the only person that's in your life for seven years, you're going to be affectionate with them regardless of how awful the situation is. And I hesitate and hate to use the words Stockholm, Stockholm Syndrome because I've read so many other cases where the women are like, no, this is not Stockholm Syndrome. We did what we had to do and pretended to survive. Which is actually what she says later. This is when, three months after Colleen escapes, this is when Janice Hooker goes to the church and tells her story to the pastor and the police detective. A week after Colleen was found, Cameron Hooker was arrested at his home in Red Bluff. And the question now kind of becomes, why didn't Colleen contact the police herself when she finally escaped and made it back home, right? So, Right, and it's my understanding as well that Janice was getting increasing pressure from Cameron to find somebody else to do this again. Right. And I had, yeah. Perpetuate this on somebody else. And so she was like, I've got to go to the authorities. I've got to stop him. Right. 
Right. Is when he started asking for more and more women that that she kind of became disillusioned with the whole thing. And right. in the documentary, they actually do talk about how Janice Hooker was also one of his victims. And Colleen actually reported that she could hear Janice crying or Cameron whipping her. And almost everything that Cameron had done to Colleen, he'd also done to his wife. So clearly yes. she was also abused. Right. Um, and it's my understanding as well, I hate to keep saying this, but that Janice and Colleen did develop a relationship and, and cared for each other because they both kind of felt like they were in the same boat with respect to their treatment from Cameron. Right. And they were they were studying the Bible together and religion has a way of bringing people together in that kind of familial sense, you know? Investigators, they searched the two homes where the hookers had lived, so the trailer where they were currently living and the house that they moved from. And again, we have pictures of this. So they have, they found leather restraints, two head boxes, the stretcher, which is another torture device, hooks in the ceiling, and hundreds of BDSM pornographic magazines, as well as pictures and rolls of undeveloped film documenting Colleen Sands' torture and abuse. So more than enough evidence to convict this guy. Exactly. And so Cameron Hooker was arraigned on December 20th, 1984, on 18 felony charges, including kidnapping, rape, and several other charges related to sexual assault. He pleaded not guilty to all counts, and he actually insisted that Colleen had become a willing participant in their sexual acts, which is crazy, but then you see this picture of them at visiting her family where she's got her arms wrapped around him and she looks really happy. So basically they're saying it's really interesting strategy. His defense attorney said, we admit that he kidnapped her because the statute of limitations had already expired on the kidnapping charge. And so they basically had to say that at some point she no longer became a kidnapping victim and that she was there voluntarily. So that there was only like the one initial kidnapping. And that was a common tool used by many prosecutors or excuse me, many defense attorneys and teams during that period of time. It's blame the victim, say the victim wanted it, tell people that the victim had something to do with staying, tell the victim. Right. Tell them that the victim was promiscuous, um, all sorts of things to sort of blame the victim so that they look less sympathetic. The other thing, you know, that they had in their toolbox was the fact that she was allowed to come and go in the later years pretty much unsupervised. So there again, this is another thing they're saying that she this is obviously evidence that she was staying there voluntarily. Like marital rape wasn't even against the law, I don't think, in 84. Right. Prosecutor, though. Figures so, that she's going to be able to prove that Colleen was coerced into staying because investigators actually found a negative of a picture that Cameron had taken of the slave contract after he and Colleen had signed it. For whatever reason, he took a picture of it, which, yeah, exactly. Dumbass. Janice was actually granted immunity for her testimony and said that she was responsible for kidnapping Colleen, but, you know, she was also responsible for releasing her because she's the one who told her that. He wasn't part of the company. And I'm sure she had no way of knowing right. that this whole right. scheme would And for all of the years. pieces of equipment used against Colleen were presented as evidence. They actually brought them into the courtroom. And this is also when the prosecutor introduced the slave contract. And Janice testified that Cameron actually found the contract in one of these BDSM magazines. And he used it to convince Colleen to accept her slavery. And yeah, so... They actually also made a replica of the box that was built to fit under their waterbed, and they brought that into the courtroom, and they actually allowed the jurors to get into the box so that they could have an idea of what she experienced every single day for five years. After three days of deliberation, the jury found Cameron Hooker guilty on all but one of the rape charges, and he, Colleen and eight of the 12 jurors attended the sentencing And he was sentenced to consecutive terms totaling 104 years. Yay. When Janice actually reported her husband to the police, she also reported that he was responsible for the abduction, torture, and murder of Marie Elizabeth Spinaki, who actually disappeared on January 31st of 1976. But... Authorities were unable to locate the remains and there was no physical proof. So they've never brought any charges against him for this one. But so when Janice reported her husband to the police, she also reported that he was responsible for the abduction, torture and murder of Marie Elizabeth Spinaki, who had disappeared on January 31st of 1976. 
But because authorities were unable to locate the remains and they found no physical proof, no charges were ever brought against him for that particular case. So, so he hid that shit well. He hid the body extremely well so that they would never find it. And they, the thing is, he was already in prison for over 100 years. So it wasn't like he was going to ever get out in this lifetime. Oh, but wait, because he was originally, yeah, he originally had a parole hearing set for 2023. But he had it moved up to 2015 Uh due to California's elderly parole program. Uh. And his request for parole was denied. But his next hearing for parole is in 2022. And he'll be almost 70 years old. Oh, shit. I'm sure there'll be people lined up ready to testify against him on that. Fuck, I'd write a letter. Right. And so now, though, Colleen, she has a daughter and she works as an advocate for domestic abuse and sexual assault survivors. And that is the story of... Colleen Stan. Wow. So luckily, when you go up in front of a parole board, they want you to acknowledge that you did it and that you're sorry for what you did. So if you're coming right. into it contrite and acting as though you didn't do it and claiming that you didn't, it is very unlikely that you will get right. Parole. And that she was there, she was willing to be there the whole time and all that bullshit. Yeah. So anyway, that is a very very interesting case. Um, if you are interested in more details about it, I highly, highly, highly recommend the book. Well, that's a documentary. I haven't read a book about it, but I would love to. Oh, I think it's The Perfect Victim. The True Story of the Girl in the Box. Yeah. The Perfect Victim, The True Story of the Girl in the Box by Christine McGuire and Carla North, North, Norton. Very, very good book. And it's a, it's a quick read and it's a relatively short paperback. I literally read it in like a couple of hours, so... Very, very interesting book. The next one that we're going to talk about tonight is a little bit more gruesome than that last one. Um, it's nice that Colleen Stanton managed to get out of that situation. And it, don't get me wrong. It's great that she escaped, but I've heard that she had an extremely difficult time after she escaped health-wise because of being in the dark. Um, she st- had stopped menstruating. She had trouble with her teeth. She had trouble with her reproductive organs. She had trouble with her internal organs, um, with every single aspect of her body because that's what happens when you get starved and tortured for years on end. So it took her a very, very long time, and I'm sure she went through a lot of counseling to get to the point where she was able to function in a somewhat normal way. And the thing is, after you go through something like that, you will never be normal again. You just have to try to exist in a world where you get as normal as you can. She also wrote a book called The Simple Gifts of Life. Right. Um, the next case that we're going to talk about today is kind of a scary one, and this is the the case of David Parker Ray, and he is otherwise known as the Toy Box Killer. Yeah, this is a doozy. I first heard about this one quite a while ago, and I've got some really insane details on this. Um, it is gruesome. Uh, David Parker Ray was born November 6, 1939. He was a serial killer and a known torturer of women, suspected. And there's a reason for that. He ended up dying of a heart attack about a year after his convictions in the two cases, so he never actually got to the prison portion of it for his crimes. No bodies were found. He was accused by his accomplices of killing several people and suspected by the police to have murdered as many as 60 people from Arizona to New Mexico while living in Elephant Butte, New Mexico, approximately seven miles north of Truth or Consequences, which is a badass name for a town, by the way. Yeah, that's such a cool name. (laughs) So he was a sneaky fucking bastard. He knew how to dispose of bodies and get rid of people to where there were no traces left. But what this man is particularly known for is he had soundproofed a truck trailer that he called his toy box. And he equipped this box with items used for sexual torture. He was actually convicted of kidnapping in torch and torture in 2001. God, it's like so recent. Not murder. He was never convicted of murder. Because he died... After his convictions, they never actually went forward with the murder convictions against him because, you know, what's the point of spending the dollars to do that when he's gone? But a little bit about Ray. Mr. Parker and his younger sister Peggy lived with a disciplinarian grandfather when they were growing up. He was sporadically visited by his violent and alcoholic father who would supply him with magazines depicting sadomasochistic pornography. Sounds like a real winner. 
good influence, uh, and all around super dad. Yeah. He was bullied by his peers for his shyness around girls while he was in high school in New Mexico. And because of his sort of fascination with these magazines and this sadomasochistic pornography, because it was what his father was like spoon feeding him from a young age, his fantasies involved raping, torturing and even murdering women during his teenage years. And that happens also when you have somebody who is like, quote unquote, not good with women. So they're afraid to talk to them. So they develop this animosity and they can't have a normal sexual, emotional relationship with a woman. And when you couple that with, you know, maybe exposure to something like sadomasochism, Mm -hmm. it's just a recipe for disaster. Exactly. So around this time, his sister discovered his sadomasochistic drawings as well as pornographic photographs of bondage acts. And back then, I'm sure it was very, very risque. And I'm sure when she saw those things, it was like highly highly embarrassing for him because that was not a thing that was done during that period of time right Um, after completing high school he worked as an auto mechanic and received an honorable discharge from the u.s army where his service also included work as a mechanic he was divorced four times and had two children including glenda jean quote jesse ray and she's going to come into play later so keep that name in the back of your mind during the time that ray was doing what he did they say that he sexually tortured and presumably killed his victims using whips chains pulleys straps clamps leg spreader bars which oh, God. who the fuck knows what that is surgical blades and saws It is thought that he terrorized many women with these tools for many years while living in New Mexico with the added assistance of multiple accomplices. So he was not the only one doing this. He had many people that were assisting him in some form, way, shape, or form. How do these people find each other? I have no idea. Like, it's before the internet. So, like, you just... Evidently, the women he was dating were helping him as well. Inside this torture room, this big soundproof like semi-truck sort of a thing, along with numerous sex toys, torture implements, syringes, and detailed diagrams showing different methods and techniques for inflicting pain, there was a homemade electrical generator that was used for torture. A mirror was mounted in the ceiling above a gynecological-type table where he would strap his victims. He would also put them in wooden contraptions that bent them over and immobilized them while he had his dogs and sometimes other friends rape them. He was also said to have wanted his victims to see everything he was doing to them during their torture sessions. He would often have recorded audio tapes of himself played for the victims whenever they gained consciousness. So I guess luckily, I I hate to use that word because it sounds like this is an awful experience any way you look at it. But it's my understanding that many of these women were raped and tortured, but they were also drugged heavily. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just don't see how exposure to things like that could i mean it would be very very difficult to to live through that and to function as a normal human being after that right evidently ray posed as an undercover police officer and approached a young woman named cynthia biggle or beagle in a parking lot he told her she was under arrest for solicitation of sex work and handcuffed her So she was a sex worker at that time, out sort of hoping to get some clients to make a little bit of money. He grabbed her, said he was an undercover police officer and said, hey, you're under arrest. Handcuffed her, put her in his trailer and took her to Elephant Butte. After three days of captivity, this woman escaped from his trailer in Elephant Butte on March 22nd, 1999. To escape, she waited until Ray went to work and then managed the keys to unlock her chains from his accomplice, Cindy Hendley. Cindy was his girlfriend. Cindy was helping him keep this woman as a torture victim, essentially. You know how they say you shouldn't trust a person that has, like, two first names? Like, their first name and their last name are both, like, first names? Yes. You ever heard that? Yes. But it's not necessarily true in this one. It's Hendy. H-E-N-D-Y. I was going to say, I'm going to add that you shouldn't trust somebody whose name rhymes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) So 
evidently the keys to unlock the chains that Ray had chained this woman. Her name was Cynthia. So keep this straight. Cynthia was the victim. Cindy was the girlfriend. Cindy Hindi. So like, yes. It also sounds like a Dr. Seuss character. Yeah. So Cindy was watching this woman while Ray went out to go to work and Ray left the keys on a table and while Hendy was in the other room on the phone, Cynthia got up and attempted to escape because she saw that the keys were there and was like, I'm just going to grab these fucking keys and get right. the hell out of here. A fight ensued. So during the struggle, Hendy broke a lamp on the victim's head, Jesus but she managed Christ. to unlock her chains and stab Hendy in the neck with an ice pick. Whoa. So there was just an ice so, pick laying around too? Right? How the fuck is there just an ice pick just chilling? So Hendy fell to the floor, this is Ray Parker's girlfriend, and Cynthia escaped. She ran away naked, wearing only an iron slave collar and padlock chains. What the fuck? Once she escaped, she ran down the road, screaming for help, getting assistance from a nearby homeowner, one of his neighbors. They took her in, comforted her, and called the police. Her escape finally led officials to the trailer and the capture of Ray with his accomplices. After she escaped, the police were able to go apprehend Ray and Hendy, and Ray was arrested. After the publicity surrounding this arrest, though, another victim, Angelica Montano, came forward. She told a very similar story that said she had reported the incident to police, but there had been no follow-up. How do you not follow Other- that up? I don't even know. It just seems like during that period of time, they they just didn't give a shit about sex workers or anyone that was perceived to be a sex worker. So, of course, they were not going to follow up on that. I mean, Jesus Christ. Other women kidnapped from Raymond's Lounge, in truth or consequences, ended up coming forward. So Raymond's Lounge, is that like a bar? Yes. Okay. And the manager of this place was also an accomplice. Oh, no. So how he got away with this was he was an armed state park officer. This gave him a little bit of credibility. He had some little bit of a badge. And so he could basically go to these women who may have been under the influence of drugs or alcohol and kind of flash a badge and be like, hey, I'm a cop. Get in the car. And they would right. follow him because, you know, what can you do? Right. Numerous individuals, including members of law enforcement, were accomplices in the torture and raping box. What the fuck? So evidently... When this whole thing came out, everybody had turned the other cheek and sort of let things happen. Explains why the previous one wasn't investigated. Right. And evidently the people, the the murder victims here, because there were allegedly quite a few of them, were not discovered because they were dumped down abandoned mines on the east side Hmm. of Caballo Lake by Ray's accomplices. So this has never been proven. I want to make that clear. But there are a few sources that say that there are quite a few murder victims out there. Ray had a video of another victim, Kelly Garrett, which dated back to 1996. Garrett was ultimately found alive in Colorado after police identified a tattoo on her ankle. But in the meantime, that video floated around out there and they thought that perhaps she was a murder victim and they were looking for her and trying to find her from the tattoo on her ankle that was See, this is why you should get tattoos. Garrett, another one of the victims, later testified she had gotten in a fight with her husband and decided to spend the night playing pool with friends. On January 24th, 1996, Ray's daughter, who was friends with Garrett, took her to the Blue Water Saloon in Truth or Consequences and drugged the beer she was drinking. So Ray's daughter was helping in all of this. This woman managed to make it to the parking lot where Ray hit her from behind, knocking her unconscious. He then took her to his trailer, attached a dog collar and a leash. She woke, but was bl- but blacked out several times during two days of torture and drugging. During this time, Ray noticed she was breathing and slashed her throat open. Holy Thinking he shit. had killed her, he dumped her on the side of the road. She was later treated for her injuries at a local clinic. Neither her husband or the police believed her story. Can you believe that shit? I don't. So like, her husband. I don't even understand that. Well, how did? How do you think her throat got slit? I don't even know. Her husband believes she was cheating on him the night she was attacked. And that she was just like this victim of an attack, but that she was cheating and she kind of deserved it, so to speak. Fuck and you. This, this dickhead you, filed for divorce and relocated to Colorado. And she relocated to Colorado. Good for her. 
Um, two other accomplices were uncovered by the investigation, Ray's daughter and a man named Dennis Yancey. Yancey admitted to strangling a former girlfriend, Marie Parker, after Ray had kidnapped and tortured her. I don't believe that Marie Parker had any relation to Ray. But Yancey right. was eventually convicted of second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and he received two 15-year terms. So basically, and this he is the one there were pictures years. of, right? Yes. Ugh. So since that murder, Ray has allegedly admitted to having had an accomplice named Billy Bowers, a previous business partner, who it was said that Ray murdered. Hmm. So FBI agents, about a hundred of them, were sent out to raise property in the surrounding area, but no identifiable, no identifiable human remains turned up there. So he hid that shit well. Yeah. So evidently, the women that he did this to were drugged with agents to induce amnesia. One, one woman remained uncertain that her recollections of the abuse were anything but nightmares until she was contacted by Holy the FBI. Holy shit. So after questioning, she came forward and began to remember her mistreatment. He recorded a how-to monologue for the women he kidnapped. So let me just read a little bit of it's this. It's so fucked up. You're here, and we're going to make the most of it. You're going to be kept in a hidden slave room. It is relatively soundproof, escape-proof, and it is completely stocked with devices and equipment to satisfy our sexual fetishes and deviations. There may or may not be another girl in the room. Occasionally, for variety, we like to keep two slaves at the same time. In either case, you, the new girl, will definitely be getting the most attention for a while. God. Now, as I said earlier, you're going to be kept like an animal. I guess I've been doing this too long. I've been raping bitches over time since I was old enough to jerk off and tie little girls' hands behind their back. As far as I'm concerned, you're a pretty piece of meat to be used and exploited. I don't give a fucking... I don't give a flying fuck about your mind or how you feel about this situation. You may be married, have a kid or two, boyfriend, girlfriend, a job, a car payment. Fuck it. I don't give a rat's ass about any of that, and I don't want to hear about it. It's something you're going to have to deal with after you're turned loose. I make it a point never to like a slave, and I fucking sure don't have any reason to respect you. Here, your status is no more than that of one of the dogs or any one of the animals out in the barn. Your only value to us is the fact that you have an attractive, usable body. And like the rest of our animals, you will be fed and watered, kept in good physical condition, kept reasonably clean, and allowed to use the toilet when necessary. In return, you're going to be used hard, especially during your first few days while you're new and fresh. You're going to be kept chained in a variety of different positions, usually with your legs or knees forced wide apart. Oh my god. Just that's so disgusting. awful. So basically, he recorded these little monologues for them to sort of scare them and give them a taste of what they were going to be experiencing during this time in his fucking torture chamber. Can he you imagine, like, you've been drugged, you're groggy, you wake up, you have no idea where you are, and that's the first thing you hear? I can't even imagine. That is, that's literally a horror film. It says that his torture usually involved bestiality yeah he reportedly treated his victims like dogs forcing them to eat on the floor while bound on a leash evidently they were bathed like dogs and forced to perform sexual acts for him and his accomplices he used things like gravy so the dogs would be forced to do things with these victims just absolutely fucking disgusting it's creature. awful he drugged and brainwashed his victims Ray had a series of tapes that he recorded that he would play for them as soon as they gained consciousness. I read a little portion of one of them. He says in another clip, I get off on mind games. After we get completely through with you, you're going to be drugged up real heavy with a combination of sodium pentol and phenobarbital. Pe they are both hypnotic drugs that will make you extremely susceptible to hypnosis. They are both hypnotic drugs that will make you extremely susceptible to hypnosis auto-hypnosis, and hypnotic suggestion. You're going to be kept drugged a couple of days while I play with your mind. By the time I get through brainwashing you, you're not going to remember a fucking thing about this little adventure. So, basically, this guy was a real fucking piece of work. And so, uh, theoretically, we don't know how many victims he had because we've already... You already talked about one that didn't remember this until the FBI contacted her. So, so there could be some that ha don't even have any idea that they were victims of his. Absolutely. What the fuck? I mean, fuck? can you imagine if you, if you were th experienced something like that and you were all drugged up with these crazy drugs? Number I would not want to remember. You would think it was a fucking nightmare. Number two, your mind would probably block out, out a lot of shit so that you could survive. Absolutely. And number, th and number three... Uh, 
you, I wouldn't want to remember that. I would not want to remember. And it just sounds like he did so many awful things to these women. And it's my understanding he just had things to shock them and clamp them and cut them and just do all sorts of awful things where they're strapped to tables and forced to bend over and using these spreaders to keep their legs open and while a series of men and other animals made their way in and out of these this torture chamber. This is a whole other level of trauma that we have not talked about on the show. Like, this is just... This is by far the worst thing that we've talked about so far, I think. Yeah, it's just fucking awful. And number one, this... This monster died before he could be prosecuted and spend time in prison, which doesn't seem fair. It's Yeah, that's like too kind of a death for him. Because I feel like he should have been gang raped in the ass by dozens of men. So Um, we have we have he was arrested. This David Yancey guy was arrested. His daughter was arrested. And Cindy Hendy was arrested. His girlfriend, Cindy Hendy was also arrested. From Whoville. Yes. So I believe that all of them got time in jail. Didn't he say, like, there were law enforcement people that were also, like, in cahoots yeah, with he them? He said that, but they never got jail time. So his daughter and his girlfriend and his accomplice, Dennis Yancey, That's they all got jail time. <laughs> Dennis got, I believe, approximately 30 years, and the daughter and the girlfriend also got prison, t- uh, prison time. Yeah. So... Though not as much. I believe that all of them, except Dennis Yancey, are now out of prison. Well, and Dennis, there were, like, pictures of him actually murdering his girlfriend, right? So I don't necessarily think that any of the other accomplices did the sorts of things that Yancey and and Ray Parker did. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine, like, being... I mean, his daughter was going out and getting victims for him. Yeah. It just... I don't... And it's very strange because I wonder, did these people know what he was actually doing to these? Did the women know what he was doing to these other women? I mean, you have to figure something, right? Because you you drug these women, you bring them back to him to do whatever it is that he's doing. And then they just disappear. Like you, you either have to like actively turn your head away from it or you have to know. Right. Right. And there are so many kind of unknown portions of this because right. the the media and the police and these investigations that go into this, we only get certain amounts of that detail. And like this one is so fucked up. It's so fucked up that you just like it's hard to talk about. It's hard to read about. There's not a lot of information out there because it's just so fucked it's up. It's so gruesome. Yeah, absolutely gruesome. Yeah. In, in, in ways that are just like so horrifying that it's like driving by a car accident and you just you it's a fatal fatal accident. But you can't look away because it's, it's awful. You're, you're riveted at the awful yeah. parts of it. Well, that was a fun um, time. Right. Good times. Let <laughs> <laughs> me um, just drink my whiskey and, here. Right. We don't want to make light of any of this because it is just awful situations that these women were victims of. Um, right. So I just want to make that clear that in no way are we trying to say this is funny or acceptable or justified or any of those things. These are just terrible, awful, gruesome circumstances that happen to these women. And it's lucky that, that, that some of them actually survived because it sounds right. as though there were quite a, quite a few of these women that did not survive. And I'm right. sure while he was tweaking the drugs and abusing these women, that there were probably women in this group that died from it. Because An unknown number. Right. And he was messing around with these drugs. He didn't know what they were actually... I mean, he knew in concept what these drugs were doing, but he wasn't a doctor. He wasn't an anesthesiologist. He wasn't trained to know the amounts of these drugs and what they could do to the human body. Right. So I'm sure he killed people not knowing that he was giving them too much of these drugs. Right. I mean, shit, so. like any other, like somebody that's not a professional injecting somebody with something, just bad news. Right. Bears. And, you know, anytime you're torturing someone with electricity. Yeah. You risk killing them because the human body the heart the brain the lungs different parts of the the adrenal system can only handle so much right before they give out and the and die essentially and i also just want to say that this is not like an indictment of the bdsm community because like the biggest tenet of the bdsm community is consent right and like when you are actively participating in that if that's your jam cool but 
this is not that. This is not a consensual. This is absolutely torture. Yeah, I don't want to throw those two things in together. Correct. Because I feel like there are a lot of people that practice BDSM that are not doing things that are illegal. Sure. Um, So let's make sure we separate those two things. So it's a good call in, in saying that as well. We're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up now. Uh, this is the point where we're going to say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Darcy, social media? We are at the BFD podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Give us a follow. Send us a message. We'll always interact. And also our email is thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Please send us any emails that you want, corrections, suggestions. Um, you want to tell us that we fucked something up? Sure, we'll listen. <laughs> we, we love your emails. And um, and please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast on because that really helps get us out there and helps more people find us. It is so, so important, people. And as well, exposure and interaction with the hosts and the shows is really important to a lot of people as well. I know that people have a tendency to just hit the like button and move on. But actually interacting with your hosts and your po- the podcast that you like is a valuable tool as well because it lets them know what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right, and what sorts of things they can work on to expand their audience. Yeah. In the meantime, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>